Welcome back to All Over the Place, Exercises in E Pluribus Urim AOTP. We are back on the live stream air this week, uh, uh, episode number 107, and it looks like our guest is with us. Dr. Spanier, are you there? Yes, I am. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Spanier, I'd like you to meet my co-host, Jim Culver. Jim, Dr. Spanier. Pleasure to meet you, sir. And nice to meet you, Jim. Thanks to you both for having me with you on this podcast. Uh, well, you know, uh, it is completely my honor, Dr. Spanier, and uh, I'm just, we're going to get it going right off the bat here because, uh, you know, you're, we're, we're going to be talking uh, a lot about your uh, upcoming book, In the Lion's Den, which is uh, the subtitle, The Penn State Scandal and a Rush to Judgment. And you, you go through this book, and I, we could sit here, and I could, your accolades and your accomplishments and everything, I could go on for probably most of this show with that. We're just going to cut to the core with all of this one. And educator, administrator, philanthropist who on two campaigns raised over $3.5 million while at Penn State, counselor, arbitrator, racquetball multi-champion, national <laughs> counterintelligence chairman, radio and TV host, and magician, and a man who transformed the Pennsylvania State University to highest of statuses in terms of you know being a, an, one of the premier educational institutions in not just the uh, United States, but the world. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Graham Spanier. Thank you, Dr. Spanier, for joining us today. Well, thank you. With all of those accolades, we could just end the show right now. <laughs> That's why I ended with Magician, because I want people to know that about you. So, uh, and, you know, and, and before I got the book, and uh, you know, I want to uh, quickly thank uh, both Debbie Williams for introducing us earlier this year, and Mary Beth Schmidt with your, your public relations for getting me the, the book advance. Uh, but before I read the book, my, my first question to you was just going to be, you know, looking back on this with the benefit of hindsight, as we, you know, that famous saying from uh, Coach Paterno, uh, I was going to ask you, you know, what was probably your biggest regret, not a regret, but what, what would you have done differently looking back as you prepared the book and you're going back over all of your notes? And then in the book, you mention that not taking the witness stand and producing character witnesses probably one of the biggest things that you would want to do differently. But then I read the book and obviously, cause I got that quote from there, <laughs> and, but then even bigger than that, what maybe I what struck me is you did not accept overtures in 2010 to be the next NCAA president, which of course eventually goes to Mark Emmert. So where does this rank in your, like, hmm, looking back, maybe this could have been done differently, being the NCAA president in 2010? Well, you've opened up a lot of doors there, and I guess we could start with the last one. Uh, I do reveal in the book that I was offered the presidency of the NCAA uh, before it was offered to Mark Emmert. Uh, I had a very, very strong leadership role in intercollegiate athletics from about the early 1990s right through the conclusion of my presidency at Penn State. Uh, and I still tr try to keep an eye on, on athletic developments and uh, people reach out to me for advice all the time. 
I turned down the presidency of the NCAA after having my arm twisted pretty hard uh, by senior staff members there and by the chairman of the executive committee because I wanted very much to stay at Penn State where I loved my job as president and where I felt I was making a difference. Uh, in retrospect, um, I, I don't think I still would have taken that that job. I mean, maybe if if I had known how things were going to unfold, <laughs> I, I would have uh, because things didn't work out so well in the end at, at Penn State. But uh, I do say in my book, uh, certainly it's it's more than a hint that I, I think Mark Emmert has made a, a, a number of mistakes. Uh, during his time in his leadership of the NCAA, and that that simply has not worked out very well. The NCAA is now in a much more weakened position with uh, what's happened with the transfer portal, name, image, and likeness, mm -hmm. the growing strength of particularly the SEC and the Big Ten conferences. More and more of the power and influence in intercollegiate athletics is now in the hands of the conferences, and I'm not sure what role the NCAA is, is going to, to have in the future. Uh, the other thing you mentioned, which I think is important in this whole saga that unfolded at Penn State, uh, was about my eventually having to go to trial on uh, what turned out to be a misdemeanor charge. Uh, right. the, the attorney general leveled 24 different charges at Tim Curley, our former athletic director, at Gary Schultz, our former vice president, and at, at me. And we ended up with one low-level misdemeanor uh, charge. Uh, I was offered a plea bargain many times, but it was just not within my value system to agree to plead guilty to something I was not guilty of. So I, I did go to trial. And at the trial, a few witnesses were produced, only two of whom knew me <laughs> or had anything yeah. to say about me. And that was Tim Curley and Gary Schultz. And they said, no, we never told Graham Spanier anything about Jerry Sandusky ab abusing a child because we were never told that. And uh, they were very clear. And they had issued statements previously along these lines that had their attorneys that I was never told anything like that. So my lawyers felt, well, wait a minute, if no evidence against you has been presented at trial, why would you take the witness stand? It makes a very strong statement to say, as my lawyer did in his closing arguments, there has been no evidence presented. Uh, so I did not take the witness stand. In retrospect, it's probably a regret that I have because I would have liked to have been on the witness stand and in my own voice made it very clear what I knew and what I didn't know, and that certainly I was was not guilty of anything. So exactly, I, I do look look back on on that with with some bit of regret. Well, I, I'm I'm glad that you you know there's two things you, you brought up in there. I'm, I'm glad that you did decide to stay at Penn State because, and I'm going to go right now to a quote from the book from uh, our first lady of Penn State, the uh, the widow of, of Coach Joe Paterno, Sue Paterno, and I'm going to, uh, so brief quote here, and I'm, I'm, um, I'll tell you why I'm glad you stayed at Penn State. 
uh, <laughs> just despite all of yeah, the, the, the fallout and everything. And it's up. And this is from Supaterno. Somewhere along the line, everyone should realize the free report's conclusions are strictly a justification for the board of trustees actions. It was not an investigation. It was to discredit four men and clear the board's conscience. There have been too many wrongs in this whole process. Somehow justice must prevail so, prevail, so we all have to fight for what is right. Lady Justice's blindfold is off and the scales of justice are askew. Each step to right this situation will help get Penn State back where she belongs. And Dr. Spanier, I am glad you stayed and I am glad you were fighting because at the, at the start of one of your chapters, you've got a quote from Mark Twain and you tell the truth and you've got nothing to remember. And you're out there, you're, you're fighting for this, which is what needs to be done. Standing up to bullies, and, and God knows bullies is probably the nicest thing I could say about the people that you had to deal with over all of this. And a judicial dysfunction and prosecutorial misconduct all over the place. Just to, such an embarrassing and, and disgusting uh, condition for the, the Penn State court systems. And, and God bless you for, for standing up for, you know, what, what too, too many people have believed as the, the false narratives for too long. And well, this thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. I, I felt that uh, standing up and being an advocate for correcting uh, misperceptions, for correcting uh, injustices, for correcting some of the false media reporting, was important not not only for my own sake but for the sake of the university. Penn State is a an incredible university, as as you know, with a just a marvelous history and an outstanding reputation. We have about seven hundred thousand living alums, and the report that the former FBI director Louis Free was hired to do, which was. Uh, full of uh, inaccuracies and and went uh, w- just went way way too far. Three chapters in the book uh, address the the situation of, of of Louis Free and and his report. It, it was important for the sake of Penn State's alumni and students and reputation for someone to stand up and say what is out there, what is being said is not right. I was in a position to argue for the truth, and I felt it was very important. And I, I know Sue Paterno uh, felt the same way, and I uh, certainly appreciate what what she has said. And and Sue has become just a Sue is always a good friend, and we did so many things together on behalf of the university, uh, as did Joe Paterno and, and I. And uh, Sue and I have become much much closer even over the last decade because we have been in this together and we've had the opportunity to support each other, uh, to know the truth, to uh, uh, to cry together at times, uh, com- commiserate with each other. Uh, uh, we, uh, we've been a mutual support society and that has been very important to me. And th- there's just great sections in the book that, that detail all of that and I'm Again, folks, I cannot recommend this book enough when it comes out in the fall. And just, it, it's getting the truth out there. And I, and I want to point out, uh, you know, uh, well, first of all, uh, backtrack to what you said about uh, Mark Emmert. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to pull any punches here, Dr. Spanier, because I, I realize that journalists, I'm a podcast host. So I can be a little bit more opinionated. I don't care what I say 
uh, in regards to certain people who ran my university through the mud and continue to have people believing in false narratives. Leadership by Mark Emmert is used in quotation marks to the nth degree. And it's just, it's just reprehensible what, what he has been a, a party to. And, and so soon on the heels of commending you at the beginning of 2011 about your, your leadership role and, and the integrity. And on that note, I want to point out to everyone who is, is listening that Dr. Mark Emmert, I'm, I'm sorry, whoop, back up, Dr. Graham Spanier, Joe Paterno, Tim Curley, and Gary Schultz have over 165 years of combined experience at Penn State making that place an institution of integrity, such that we were looked at as a, and I say we are, I'm a proud Penn Stater, and anyone who's known me for the last decade plus now, having to deal with the lies and false narratives on this, knows how passionate I am about this. And it's because I was raised at a place and schooled at a place that values itself on integrity and doing the right thing. And these guys have over 165 years of combined integrity, and they got thrown under the bus by ESPN and the likes who had a grudge against us. And... I mentioned ESPN. <laughs> they have nothing compared to what I now, the contempt I now hold for the judges you had to put up with and uh, former Governor Tom Corbett. And I, this book goes into such detail. And I took my Lovastatin earlier today, so my heart conditions, you know, my, my blood pressure is not going to rise any more than, you know, I'm, uh, <laughs> I come from a family with a long history of, of uh, congenital heart problems. So I made sure I took the right medication well, today. So. You, have, you have mentioned uh, many of the individuals who I, I do talk about very candidly in the book. Uh, everything I say uh, I, I hope is is measured, but it's truthful and it's documented. And I even include in the book the email exchange I had with Mark Emmert mm -hmm. the evening before his sensationalized press conference where he basically denounced Penn State and, and me and others. And I had been someone who had supported Mark Emmert's career and had opened some doors for him, provided opportunities. And, you know, the night before he and the, the chairman of the executive committee are saying to me, oh, we're not going to say anything about you, but they got carried away and they did. And, and that, that really hurt. It, it damages people's reputations unfairly. And, you know, the more people who, who uh, jumped on this locomotive to, uh, say things that were negative about Joe Paterno and, and Penn State and the rest of us um, were, were very damaging and, and very unfair. Uh, it, it, it was uh, disturbing to so many of us. And, and I think if you're a Penn State alum like you, this, this is traumatic. This had been traumatic for so many of our alums, our students, uh, our donors, our, our supporters, uh, even folks who, who weren't directly connected to the university, but were just fans who loved Joe Paterno and what he stood for, success for honor. He, he was not only the winningest coach in the history of college football, but he, he set the standard for academic excellence and integrity. And, you know, in the book, I have chapters on the NCAA, the Big Ten, the athletic culture at Penn State, the real athletic culture that we had created there, the checks and balances that we had that were unparalleled, 
the fact that only two universities in the United States had never had a major infraction, Penn State and Stanford. And I, I highlight these things in the book in addition to all of the academic su success statistics, because we were a school that won, but we did it right. And, exactly. that's what, and that's what we all stood for. And that's what our alumni knew. And that's why, you know, when I was out raising money for the university, I always included in my speeches that we, we operated athletics on a self-support basis. We, I talked about graduation rates, which were, you know, at the top nationally. And this, uh, this was so important to us. So w when this narrative came out that spoke about, you know, football is king or athletics is king or even ridiculous statements that that uh, Joe Paterno ruled the university, not the president. I put the factual <laughs> information in there that refutes that very clearly. Now, how, how did you feel playing second fiddle to that guy? Come on. <laughs> well, I'll tell you uh, a couple of examples. When... Um, uh, whenever Joe and I needed to meet, uh, usually it was Joe and Tim Curley and I, our, our athletic director and I, we, we would meet from time to time. Uh, by the way, we never talked about football. People would find that surprising. Joe did not have conversations with me about football. He cared about the university, mm -hmm. about at academics. He was very involved in fundraising. And when there were issues to come before the NCAA, where I had a number of leadership roles, he was concerned about the legislation that was out there and what some other schools were promoting and always wanted us to, to do the right thing. When we met, it was always in my office. If we ever I, I love reading that in the book. I love that. Yeah. Never in his we, office. Always if yours. If we ever had a meeting during the week, it was in my office. And there were times when I knew he was getting ready for a game and he was busy and said, Joe, I'll come over to your office. And he said, no, you're the president. We are meeting in your office. I need to come to you. And the only times we ever met anywhere besides my office were if we had to meet for one reason or another on a weekend, and then it was either at my home, at the president's residence, or at Joe and Sue's kitchen table, which I actually preferred because Sue always had chocolate chip cookies <laughs> there, and uh, she and I had a thing about chocolate and chocolate chip cookies. And so, uh, yes, Joe would always come in and uh, meet with me in, in my office, and you know, there were times, uh, especially in his last decade as coach, where there would be something coming up with the NCAA or uh, uh, I was heavily involved in nationwide in uh, conference realignment and in media contracts in creating the Big Ten Network. And he would just say to me, Graham, you know much more about this sort of thing than I do. Uh, I'm going to support whatever you decide. Uh, you're the president. Uh, you're on top of these things. I support you. That that was how we operated. And you know, and we we talk about you know the integrity of you and uh, and Curly Schultz and, and and Joe Paterno. You know, as you watch all of this unfold, and then going back and as you're uh, you know creating the book and doing the outline and everything, did you ever 
what what would the big takeaway from this with me and I, I mentioned my contempt for the judges and uh, former governor corbett and, and so many others in the judicial system in pennsylvania when did you did you ever in real time realize how much contempt these people had for you and the grudges they held against you despite saying one thing to your face about how how exemplary you run the university well a, a lot of what you've just described unfolded over time some of it i knew early i i learned while i was still president that the former uh now former governor tom corbett um uh, who was the attorney general by the way when the yes. San, when the sandusky investigation started i learned through my governmental affairs folks and four members of the board of trustees that the governor had told supporters uh, in a semi-private setting that if he w was elected governor, uh, and this was about a month before he was elected, if he was elected governor, he would remove me as president of Penn State. Uh, was any reason he, given or it was just yeah, Yes. General. He, he seemed to be angry that he had seen me on an elevator with his opponent in the election. That's uh, right. That is mentioned in the book. This. Okay. Yeah, there's not, that not, not that I, I mean, I was uh, studiously neutral as president, never endorsed a candidate, never went to political fundraising events, never chose sides. Um, and we had invited both of the gubernatorial candidates to come to Penn State football games and park their buses there. We, 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 we would host them both. Uh, but now, he, did he, you hear that Hollywood? You Hollywood <laughs> entertainment. You don't want to offend half of your audience. Remain neutral. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> the I, concept. Yes, right. So he had. I had gotten warnings from several people, and th this was actually confirmed by a seventh person, a member of the board of trustees who told me that actually a couple of years later, because the governor had told him this same thing personally. Uh, so, you know, that animus was there early on. I, I knew about it. It didn't trouble me too much. I mean, it troubled me to the extent that you, you never want to be crossways with, with the governor. And we, we later had a private meeting in Pittsburgh for more than an hour where uh, I, I thought everything was was going to be fine. And I actually, in the book, include my summary of that meeting that I sent in an email to my staff immediately afterwards. But um, things just unfolded very negatively. And, and then uh, because he was governor, he got to appoint an attorney general to fill out his term. And she picked up the mantle of what he had started and it was his chief of the criminal division who became the lead prosecutor in my case, and he picked it up. He he later was suspended from the practice of law by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for his. Are, are, are we talking about Mr. Frank? We're talking about Mr. Frank Fina, correct? That is that's correct. Mm -hmm. not, not only did uh, he engage in all kinds of misconduct in coming after me. But he was very much at the center of the pornography ring being run mm -hmm. out of the attorney general's office. Uh, th there is so much in the book that you couldn't make up because it, it, it's, it's true, but nobody could ever concoct 
a story as bizarre of what actually unfolded. Uh, and, and that's in listening to uh, John Ziegler and being a friend of Zig's uh, for for many years now, and just uh, the exhaustive research he has done, and it's this perfect storm. You can't make this stuff up. It's, it just seems all of it. It's like how really this and that and this. No, this doesn't seem right. And and very quickly, I, I do want to point out, uh, you know, just in this almost eleven years now that we've been doing this, John Ziegler has been a big source of uh, keeping. All of us informed with uh, you know just so much information and in, in, in terms of discrediting the people who tried to discredit you, and you know also Ralph Cipriano I want to give credit to and John Snedden, Dick Thornburg, uh, Ray Blahar, and uh, I'm glad you gave so much. Uh, there is a, a nice amount of love in the book to Franco Harris, who has been the only. And I want to remind every Penn State football player out there who's going to be listening to this eventually: you may be on board now, but you weren't when all of this hit the fan. And Franco Harris was from day one. And Franco, thank you so much for being that man on the island. I remember him standing out there in front of the uh, in front of the van. I think it was the Board of Trustees van. He stood out there like that kid in Tiananmen Square, and he wouldn't let them pass. So Franco, much love to Franco, and just keeping keeping this uh, the 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 what Coach Paterno mentioned. Just shine light on the truth. I want people to know what happened here. Shine light on the truth. And again, Dr. Spanier, thank you for being the man at the tip of the spear right now. Well, thank you. You, um, I didn't know that you had been in touch with all of those people. You've mentioned uh, so many of the people who have been swimming upstream against the early media narrative because these are folks who not only have known the truth, uh, but they, they didn't just accept this truth blindly through... Mm-hmm some sort of, of loyalty that they, they have researched every aspect of this and they have tried to put sunlight onto the matter. And, you know, it, it's required some bravery on, on their part to everyone's yes, to uh, put themselves out there and be subjected to, to criticism. But, uh, you know, collectively the people that you have mentioned are, I'm going to say 99% correct in, in what they have put out there and what what they have discovered. And I I am so grateful that they have done that. None of them has had anything to gain. If anything, they've had something to lose. I mean, you you mentioned Franco and uh, I I think, you know, one of the people who who sponsored him along the way immediately withdrew their sponsorship. Uh, They reinstituted it. you know, uh, uh, other people have had a, a cast of a shadow put over them when what they're trying to do for no gain of their own is to get the truth out there. But, you know, not only the, the people you mentioned, but uh, I, I, I do reference in the book the, the hundreds, the thousands. Oh, there, are, there are so many people. The, those, those, the, thousands, yeah. the thousands of of supporters, the emails that I've received, you know, when people ask me, how, how did you cope with this? How did you survive? Well, it's a combination of, of family and, and friends, uh, even some friends who people have become friends more recently, people I didn't even know before who have said, you know, you didn't know us, but we knew you from a distance. We knew what you stood for. We knew what you've done for Penn State. And we know this is wrong. And what can we do for you? I I had breakfasts, lunches, and dinners for months and months and months. I mean, they continue now. 
and people were bringing over casseroles. Uh, you know, no, nobody died, but yeah, I guess you could say something died out there and people just felt that they wanted to do what they could to send their love and, and to be supportive. Oh, boy, it's felt like an Irish wake far too much than we would care to admit, on. I know. And, and I, I want to point out right here to folks, because you mentioned the word blindly following, and, you know, and I will be the first to admit, I got caught up in the mob, mob vengeance, the, the mob mentality, uh, right out of the gate on that one. And, and fortunately, I, I had known John Ziegler beforehand, and uh, a couple of documentaries that he had done, and... He is a, a man of, of integrity as well. And John's dogged pursuit of the truth, whether it was going after ABC when they uh, censored uh, the path to 9-11 or things with, with Sarah Palin and, and justices that she had to face. And John just cares about the truth. And he's someone who grew up, he's a Philadelphia area guy. He grew up not liking Joe Paterno, not liking Penn State. But he saw something was wrong, and John can sniff stuff out like nobody I've ever seen. And I, I, I'm glad that he approached me, knowing that I'm a, I'm a Penn Stater, and I was uh, very fortunate to be along for the ride on that one early. And I, I just want the truth. If my university did something wrong, I would, I would be the first one to point it out. I'd be very disappointed, but I, I would want the truth out there. Yeah, because yeah, you, you got it, warts and all. That, that's just the way life is. No, nothing's that you know. Well, I don't criticize people who, when they heard the first media reports in those early days, weeks, and months, might have felt that, uh, you know, we were all guilty of something, that, that the Penn State administration covered something up because that's what they were hearing. And, uh, you know, when, when you see national surveys about the trust people have in the media and journalists, it's very low. But on the other hand, you might be like me. I listen to the news, watch it every day, read the papers every day. And you do tend to believe what you see and, 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 and what you read. So it, it, it takes time for people to take a step back and realize, wait a minute, what we heard isn't right. And maybe there's a little more or a lot more to the story. I have a chapter in the book called Media Culpa, and in there, and I, I do name some names mm -hmm. of reporters who got the story wrong and who I later had a chance to speak with, and they admitted to me that, yes, I got the story wrong, but their editors and higher-ups would not allow them to go back and redo the story or correct it. Uh, or it gets buried on page 77, whereas it used to be the front page headline. Yeah. Yeah. I have a broadcast media interview coming up in the next few days with someone who reported all the events in uh, November of 2011. And uh, he and I have met several times now. At one level, he's almost begging for my forgiveness. He said he, his conscience has been bothering him for 10 years because he, he reported some things inaccurately and he is determined before he retires in his career to undo that and to get the correct story out. Of course, I will be happy to cooperate with him on that. 
And I, I remember that being in the book as well. I'm t- folks, this book is so awesome. <laughs> and uh, it reads quickly. I'm a slow reader, as I've mentioned many times on, on the on the various podcasts. Not the, not the swiftest, swiftest reader in the world. But yet you mentioned someone like that whose conscience is bothering them. And, and what... As someone who did get caught up with it, and you know, and obviously, when a university, the board who we thought we could trust, when when we thought we could trust them anyway, is telling us, "Oh, you know, having the mentality, but we've got to go along to get along," and we just want to we want to sweep this under the rug, which is ironic considering they accused you and Curly Paterno and Schultz of trying to sweep things under the rug. Then they want to sweep things under the rug. Oh, this will all just go away if we just oh, just accept it, move on, move on, move on. And, you know, I'm someone who came around, and how, how many encounters have you had with uh, alums? Or, or people, you know, like we, we've, got our, we've got our pits, we've got our, you know, all of our various rivals who ped state, all that stuff. How many people have you encountered who have had a change of heart now that they've had time to look back and say, you know what? Dr. Spanier got the short end of the stick on this one, and I'm, I'm, I'm really keeping my uh, son of a sailor. Uh, jargon in check today uh, it's uh but how many you know has it well, been I, has it been encouraging no, no. as the more more time has, has taken well i'd like to say that that number is in the thousands or even the hundreds but it's not it's in the dozens uh which is a relatively small number and and here's how i explain it Uh, I have heard from thousands of people who have always been supportive of me throughout this. So they haven't changed their mind. Um, And a lot of people who came to a negative conclusion early on, uh, I don't think have changed their minds. And and they're not the people that are are speaking to me. Uh, I, I just don't run into very many people who... Uh, who have anything negative to say. Uh, I, I have had a few members of the 2011 Board of Trustees who, be, who have privately said to me, essentially, we blew it. Um, uh, they have now revealed to me their unhappiness with the de facto chair of the board at the time. And, and they, a few of them have said to me that you know, when they were paraded out in front of the media at 10 at night uh, hmm. after after they had heard the expression, we're not drinking the Kool-Aid, we're sticking with this narrative, uh, they did not realize what was fully, what, what was going to unfold. They, they simply went along with the firing of Joe Paterno and accepting my resignation is, is president and are not entirely happy now with, with how that all un, unfolded. But I, I think most, I, I don't know if there are huge numbers of people out there who have a negative point of view, who have changed their minds or are open-minded enough to change their minds. That's a hard thing for anybody to do. I, I talk in the book about some journalists who, you know, just can't seem uh, even when presented with the facts and new information, they they stick to the old narrative and they they just won't be challenged about it. And, well, there's another which brings it to mind another Twain quote: "It's easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled." Yeah, 
And and uh, Jim, I want I want to uh, get you inv- into the mixture because you know, you're someone who you know when we still had the old three donia blog space and everything, and you you've seen my evolution with this to a, to a more than most people have anyway. And you know, what 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 is your and and you and and God bless you, you've been someone who's had an open mind about this, and I you know. We, we don't need to get into Jerry Sandusky guilt, guilt instance. And, and folks, just something on that note too. Dr. Spanier mentions that very explicitly at the start of the book. It's not about Jerry Sandusky's guilt or innocence. It's about, you know, the, this uh, miscarriage of justice. And that, that's what it's about. But Jim, as someone with a, with a non-Penn Stater's perspective, what, what has your evolution been on this? As much uh, well, as you can speak to it. As much as I can speak to it, I mean, I would say this is emblematic of something that's been happening really all across the board. Uh, you know, you know, there's there's so much corruption going on with with government, with media, uh, and there's you know th- these rushes to, judge- to judgment happen all the time because what happens is people that are that are supposed to be in charge of finding the truth instead find a narrative that they like and they they run with it, and once they do it is very, very difficult to get anyone to break out of it. They just become like like bulls charging forward. And uh, certainly that seems like a case of what happened here. Um, and I'm, I'm genuinely very sorry that, that innocent folks like Dr. Spanier were caught up in that. Uh, but unfortunately it's happening all over the place. Uh, I don't know what is causing it to happen more these days, if it's uh, just society becoming more politicized, but I think it's more than that. I think there's just so much entrenched power and so many narratives that have been set in place over over the last four or five decades that the people in charge of our of our media in charge of our government that are that are supposed to be advancing certain causes are instead advancing the narratives that they like mm-hmm. and certainly Graham i think that's what's happening here sports byline he was the president of penn state nope. university when sex accusations against the gary sandusky came and I have no uh, idea where that that popped up somewhere on somewhere wow. on your phone. Um, uh, if you don't mind me asking, Doctor Spanier, uh, uh, so as, as someone who's experienced some of that uh, government media corruption, unfortunately up close, um, would you feel like that there are any any reforms you'd like to see made, either legal or otherwise, that that you that you'd like to see that you feel like would prevent something like this from happening again? Well, Jim, I, I think your the comments you made are 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 excellent, and uh, thank you. Uh, you know, I I was a television talk show host for about three decades. I was started out as a very young radio announcer in the Chicago area at fifteen. I was a sports reporter, a journalist. I worked my way through school in in journalism and broadcasting, and so I am a an incredible supporter of the media generally. And I think reporters want to get the story right. They, they really do. It, it's, it's important for their careers, but they get caught up in this idea of being the first to report something or breaking news or exclusive. You've, you've heard it here. And that, right. that, that creates people taking shortcuts and following the herd and not necessarily getting it right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, people uh, will, will always, that people will forget that you were the first person to report something or that your network 
was the one that got the story first, but they will never forget if you got it wrong and created a mess. Uh, and and your, your earlier comment, Eric, about ESPN getting some of it wrong is correct. They got some of it right. Uh, and Don Van Natta, one of their reporters, probably yes. did the best reporting on it. But, but and then, others, then they, they put uh, handcuffs on him. So it's, yes, but, yeah. but but others didn't. So I, I'm not just critical of, of the media for criticism's sake, but right. they've got to do a better job. And you know, in terms of the judicial system in Pennsylvania, it yes, that has been horrible. We we had some good judges along the way. I think I had 20, I counted up that I had 21 different judges involved in this at one point or another. And I think some of them were very smart and got it right. But then there were others that got it wrong. And, uh, you know, I have a, a chapter early in the book uh, called Moral Panic. Now, I'm a sociologist, a family sociologist, a marriage and family therapist. I've studied this phenomenon of moral panic, and I thought I should have a, a short discussion of it in the book. What happens when someone like Jerry Sandusky is accused of abusing children and, and nothing stirs up public uh, concern more than the abuse of children? And I, I understand that and, and happen to agree with it, but but what often happens is that uh, the focus changes from a particular person who's a perpetrator to a larger story. And, you know, people talk about this saga at Penn State as a sports scandal. It had absolutely nothing to do with sports. Jerry Sandusky had been retired He's a former coach. He wasn't employed by Penn State at the time that we heard that he was in a shower. He wasn't employed by Penn State at the time he was charged. There was no real involvement at Penn State. And when Jerry Sandusky went to trial, he was found not guilty on the very charges that tied him in any way to Penn State. Uh, so, the moral panic is when you, you take a, a person or an incident and all of a sudden people want to bring others in. People wanted to bring in the winningest and most revered coach of all time. They wanted to bring in a respected longtime university president, the, probably the top athletic director in the country, Tim Curley a few days later was supposed to get the John Toner Award as the outstanding athletic director in the United States. Gary Schultz had served Penn State for about 40 years and is, is so key to the foundation of why Penn State is so great today. Why were all of us pulled into this? Uh, it, it relates to this phenomenon of, of moral panic which then is fed by the media. So I'm just tying a few things together. <laughs> and and, and, and as, you say in, as you say in the book, logic and fairness has been abandoned in favor of sensationalism. And, and I will continue to have a grudge or, or just consider what ESPN did out of the gates. And yes, some people have come around there. I, I will not ignore them. But they drove home a false narrative that's far too many people still believe. 
And until they have someone on their uh, uh, game day come out and make a formal apology, and, and, and anyone who's listened to uh, John's reporting through, through the years now, and, and I, I cannot recommend enough, folks, check out John and Liz Habib's With the Benefit of Hindsight podcast uh, over at, uh, at Spotify or iTunes. But check that out. But, you know, it, there's people over there like, like uh, Kirk Herbstreet who want to admit, who revere Joe Paterno, but they're, they're, they're handcuffed by, by a network who doesn't want to admit they were fooled and that they were part of the reason so many other people got fooled. So it, it's, and to, to what Jim's saying, I mean, there are, uh, should there be some laws? We, we've got defamation laws already in place. And I, I think that, you know, I, I would like to see more people biting back against that, like, like, like we've seen with uh, some of, uh, you know, CNN getting sued for their reporting and Fox and, and just people who be having to be held accountable for defaming a person's character. And, and I, I, ho- I really hope this book can continue the pendulum swinging in that direction. Well, I, I don't expect anybody to come out with any public apologies, and uh, that's really not what I'm pushing for at this point. Um, I'm a dreamer. I, I'm, I'm an eternal dreamer, Dr. Spaniards. My, my, my goal in, in my book was simply to, to get the truth out, to tell the story. Uh, it, it's a personal memoir, but it's, you know, it's all very thoroughly documented, and and I, I, I didn't really hold back much. Um, no, not at all, which is it, great. It, it, it's all out there. And I, I just hope that it, it's a historical document so that, that and anyone who has an open mind or wants to learn more could, could read about it and say, I didn't know that. Uh, that's important to know. And, uh, and, you know, maybe some of those folks in that middle category will change their mind. I hope so, and you know, and I and I, I I should dial it back because there's there's a great quote from from Coach Paterno. I'm glad you mentioned it because Jay Paterno mentioned it to you, and uh, Joe Joe said, "Those who hate you don't win, unless you hate them. Then you destroy yourself." And, and as Metallica so eloquently put, "Don't want to waste my hate, hate waste my hate on you. <laughs> Rather keep it all for myself." Right. But but but, but 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 of course, Ronnie James Dio also said with Black Sabbath, "Listen to fools, the mob rules." But and and uh, and uh, more uh, with the book, and uh, again, you know, I just uh, I I just want to recommend it again when it when it comes out next month. Just very thorough, and then but the, the chapter that you devoted toward. Uh, to when you when you had to serve your your sentence and you know it's they say everything has a silver lining and uh, but you know uh, would you please explain to our listeners uh, just uh, uh, the very admirable uh, you know the, the mission that you now have for uh, prison reform yes I, I think a lot of that is great well I uh, you know this unfolded at Penn State in November of 2011 uh, I was not charged until a year later, uh, I think it was three days before the election of a new attorney general, it was kind of the last ditch effort of uh, the individual you mentioned, Frank Fina, to mm-hmm. charge me with something, anything. All of those charges were eventually thrown out uh, because they were improper. But then the attorney general, people don't understand, a couple of years later, they developed a whole new set of charges, anything they could think of that 
that might allow them to continue to pursue the case. Uh, things were thrown out along the way, but eventually we went to trial. I went to trial in 2017. And uh, the uh, charges that were uh, taken up at, up at, at that trial uh, involved a, a constitutional ex post facto violation. They charged mm -hmm. me with a, a, a crime in 2001 that was not on the books until 2007. Even though that didn't apply, uh, uh, there was a, that uh, there was a two-year statute of limitations, and they charged me 12 years later. Uh, that shouldn't have applied, and the judge gave the jury instructions for a different law, so it all should have been thrown out. And guess what? It went to federal court, and it was and it was thrown, thrown out. out. Yes, it, it was <laughs> thrown out, and I was scot-free. And I, I talk in the book about my elation about that happening, including how Franco Harris, who was a, a great friend and a great supporter, <laughs> called me up and said, Graham, if I could still jump, I would be jumping up and down. Right I love now. that. <laughs> uh, but you know what? At the uh, Federal Third Circuit Court of Appeals, the person who got my case and who wrote the opinion was a friend and colleague of the former governor, Tom Corbett. Uh, he should have declared a conflict of interest. He came out of retirement uh, as a senior judge, they called it, to write this opinion, which did not make any, any sense to any lawyers who, who I spoke with. The, the result of that, however, was that I did have to spend two months in jail, in prison, uh, followed by two months of house arrest for that misdemeanor. It was at a time when the attorney general himself was arguing that a first-time nonviolent misdemeanor, uh, nobody should go to jail for that because COVID was rampant mm -hmm. where I was being assigned and people were being let out because of that. But I went in anyway. And what I say about it is that it was an absolutely horrible experience but it was a very educational experience. After I got through the first couple of weeks of accepting in my own mind that I was incarcerated and that I had to suffer the indignities that come with that and the control over my life, uh, being incarcerated, wearing a mask 100% of the time, uh, uh, just having gotten over open heart surgery and having an active case of cancer at the time, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was it was horrible. But when I finally realized I am just going to have to cope with this and get through it, I put on my cap as a sociologist and said, I'm going to learn everything I can about all of this and what's going on here. And I I became, I guess you could say, the jailhouse lawyer, therapist, doctor, arbitrator, uh, just add to your resume. After a while, the inmates there, uh, all of whom were, of course, younger than me, some of them, you know, still in their teens and most of them in their 20s, um, they would come to me for advice or e even therapy. They would tell me their life stories. And I began to develop a very good sense of the fact that there is no uh, 
there's no corrections going on in the corrections facility. Probably half the people there should not be there at all. That's not to say they haven't done anything wrong in their lives, but this is not what you do with them. Most of them there uh, have addiction issues. Uh, they have serious mental health problems. They have uh, uh, physical uh, disabilities and medical conditions, and none of that is is being treated very well. And putting them in, in jail for months at a time, or sometimes years at a time, is not solving that problem. So yes, I have become an advocate for, the, for trying to make improvements in the system. Within a short time after I was out, I had meetings with the county administrator, with the uh, with the chair of the commissioners of the county that oversees this facility that took prisoners from 15 different counties in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, I've offered to speak at a national meeting of, of county commissioners. I have met with the head of the Pennsylvania Prison Society that tries to support inmates. Um, I, uh, I want to do everything I can to try to bring some sense of, of justice and order and reason uh, to this to this system and, and maybe I can help well I've uh, worked well I left about a year ago but I, I worked for a few years in uh, at a, a school facility that was for uh, ki- uh, uh, troubled troubled youth and uh, I saw a microcosm of what you describe in the book at, at my facility. And so I, it's uh, thank you for stepping up and thank you for get, for getting involved at the adult level. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this is a kick in the butt for me to, to do it at the youth level. I'm, I'm, I'm a youth umpire and a sports official and it's uh, something, that's, uh, something that needs to be done. So it's, I know that's a, that's a passion of yours. And it starts, way, it starts uh, when they're younger. And, and if oh, we can I, find something to, to, to work it when they're younger, I'm a big advocate of hugs, not drugs. And I had a program, slugs, not drugs. Take them to the batting cages. Work out your, uh, your aggressions there. Uh, but you know, if, if you start younger, then you aren't dealing with that at the adult level. You're hopefully finding the, something to break the system. In the, last the, chap, in the last chapter of my book, which is titled Incarceration, I, I, I talk very candidly about some of the inmates there mm-hmm. one place in the book where I, I change the names of the people because sure. I, I, I don't want to encourage any stigma that shouldn't be there. Um, but I, I talk about their stories and, and of course about my experience as well. It, it could have been much heavier. I tried to lighten it up with a little bit of, of humor because well, it, it I, I did like distressing. that. No, I, I want to let people know there are two very specific, and uh, I, I won't see what they are, but there, there's a, it, there's a light tone without it, and it, it, the, the, your writing style throughout the book, it's just informative, and, and like I said, just it does lighten the mood with uh, with uh, one of the hair care products that you used, and I, I thought that. I'm like, should I be laughing right now? Yeah, I guess you have to laugh or you cry. So yeah, okay, there you go. Well, no, there was a lot, a lot to laugh at. I, I, I talk in the book about. Uh, how they issue you, you're not allowed to bring anything in with you. Right. I mean, nothing. Mm-hmm. So they, they issue you when you come in a toothbrush, but it's only three inches long. It, it, you could easily swallow it. It's, it's so small. Uh, but then you have to buy everything. Uh, and most of these folks have no money at all. I was the mm-hmm. only one who, you know, had the means to, so I, I bought toothpaste and, 
because I, I was on work release and I was accustomed to shaving every day, I continued to shave every day, but they issue you a razor, which uh, you have to go check it out from the corrections officer and they, they watch you carefully. You can only have it for a few minutes, but you have to, to buy your own shaving cream. And there, there wasn't a day that I could use one of the razors where I didn't cut myself because there's one blade that I don't know where they get these things, but it's, it's impossible. It's impossible to shave without cutting yourself. So I ordered. Once shaving. you've had multiple blades, there's no going back to single. <laughs> there really isn't. I, I, uh, and then you have to return the blade and they examine it and so on, but you have to order your shaving cream. So I ordered the shaving cream and I looked at the tube uh, of the shaving cream I ordered and it, it looked like it was what I now understand is called a depilatory, which you put on and it, it gives you warnings on there about how it can burn your face. And one guy wanted to know, I said, I, I can't use this again. I mean, it, it's terrible. He said, well, can I have it? And I, I gave it to him. I said, of course you can have it. And he put it all over his face. And for the next week or two, his face was bright red and swollen. I, I felt badly for him, but um, it was just one of those. I can't even remember if that anecdote made the cut in in my chapter or not. Well, I, I, it did, and and I also, despite that, that you being a you know could be seen as a potential enabler to him breaking out with that rash. I'm still going to nominate you for that Emily Post award you mentioned. I I will, I'll be your seconding on that one. I, I will gladly sign a petition well, for that one. It was it was very sad when it came time for me to leave because. My my sentence was two months, and everybody else there had a longer sentence, um, so they were all still going to be there. And it, it was very sad when I I left. People asked me, "Could I have your leftover toothpaste, or could I have your, you know, different things that were left over?" And of course, I I gave them all away because there were only I think three of us out of thirty in my cell block who ever had any toothpaste. Yeah. And, and when I got when I got out uh, right away, I had a dentist appointment and I, I my dentist was, you know, very curious what it was like. And I said, they have no toothpaste there. And she said, well, we have boxes of toothpaste and they have expiration dates and we're required to throw them away. I said, well, can I have them? So I I got them out to the prison so that everybody at the correctional facility uh, would have toothpaste at least for a short period of time. See, I, I knew that the Emily Post Award is going to go to you. <laughs> you don't have to convince me any further, and that just takes it over the top. So, and absolutely, and, and I mean, all candor aside, I mean that that's I, I I've witnessed it, and 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 thank you for you know stepping up right now and, and assuming that mantle for some prison reform. It's uh, just people scrambling for something, anything, and, and there's heartbreaking stories. And like you said, there's people obviously they, they do things to go there. Uh, but you know, there, there are other avenues that can be taken, whether it's mental health services, counseling, a anything like that, that what we can, we can take some of the, the load off of the stigma that gets attached, unfortunately with things. So thank, thank you for, you know, for doing that wow. and, and mentioning these things in the book. So, uh, but yeah, and I, I 
again, a very detail-oriented book, but but not in a way that weighs you down. It's not like a huge statistic books. It, it flows very, very, very quickly and very easily. And it's uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually having a, a, a solid copy. I'm an analog guy, Dr. Spanier, and it's nice mm-hmm. to have a, a Kindle-type book, which the, the advance was, but... Uh, you know, I, I like to have it in my hands. So, but I'm looking well, forward the, to that. the book. The book is is available. Uh, you can pre-order it now through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and mm-hmm. other entities. Uh, and, and the release date is they, when it's it's in, tentatively well, set for September now. Or do we have an actual date? Yeah, they listed it as a release date of September six, but my uh, uh, the publishing people are working on getting that moved up. So it people who have ordered it will, I hope, get it any day now. I, I hope it's just a matter of dates. Okay, and uh, and I will keep our all over the place audience informed of that one. And it's again, Doctor Spanier, thank you for sp- spending time with us here on the show. And I'm I'm glad uh, Jim was able to uh, to, to learn more and, uh, and 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 be be involved in the show today. And uh, it's it, it's been an honor. So cannot thank you enough. Well, thank you very much, and maybe we'll uh, bump into you again, Eric, somewhere along the way. Uh, looking forward to that day, whenever it may be, whether it's in State College or here in the desert, it will be an honor then as well. Uh, and I guess I, any anything further that we'd like, uh, anything that we didn't touch on that you, uh, about the book or, or uh, just the overlying situation surrounding it that uh, that you'd like to bring up? No, I, I think we've raised a number of different issues. I mean, we could talk about it all night. and. <laughs> That's true. And I have been known to talk about it for hours, but <laughs> uh, but I, I think we've gotten enough out there that anyone who is curious about the real story would be able to order In the Lion's Den and, and learn a lot more and uh, I, I think would, I, I hope, find it persuasive, enlightening, maybe a little fascinating and um so, uh, yeah, I, I think this your podcast was a good start for that. Glad to be of service. You know, we, we are loyal and Penn Staters always. So, but not blindly loyal. Don't forget that. Not blindly loyal, folks. We want the truth. Right. So, and uh, well, again, uh, folks, check out, and I will keep you informed and keep and actually head over to Amazon or Barnes and Noble, whatever your uh, preferred outlet is, and look for Dr. Graham Spaniers. In the Lion's Den, The Penn State Scandal, and A Rush to Judgment. Once again, Dr. Spanier, thanks for joining us here on All Over the Place, and uh, look forward to seeing you down the line. Thank you, Eric, and thank you, Jim. All right. Take care. Bye. Take care. Well, Jim, thank you, thank you as well, my my friend, and uh, we will be back next week with another episode of All Over the Place. That, of course, was Dr. Graham Spanier, former Penn State president, Educator, administrator, philanthropist, magician, racquetball multi-champion, and uh, putting all that on a business card. It's got a, it's like those old the baseball cards with uh, Tommy John and all those old timers from who had crept from the fifties and sixties into the seventies. Really, really tiny print. I think it'd be pulled off. But uh, thanks always for joining us here on AOTP, everyone, and we'll be back with you with a new episode next week. Take care. <laughs>